Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's gonna happen in a hundred years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had. People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction. Welcome back to What Happens Next. We've been exploring the controversial issue of fake news. So what can we as individuals do? In this episode, we've gathered all the tips from our experts to help people identify fake news and misinformation campaigns, and some ideas about how we can all contribute to a better informed society. Here's Mark Andreevich. I'm Mark Andreevich. I'm a professor of media studies in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. And I write about the social, cultural and political impact of digital media technology. Quiet, quiet, quiet. See, he lied about he was going to get up and ask a very straight, simple question. So, you know, welcome to the world of the media. How much longer should we stay here, folks? Wait, let's see. Who's... I want to find a friendly room. The public isn't... You know, they read newspapers, they see television, they watch. They don't know if it's true or false. Mark Andreevich, what can individuals do? Apart from making sure I only get news from trusted, reliable sources, what else can we do? I mean, I think... Everything that we can do to foster a sense of understanding of interdependence and to find ways to reinforce the information uh, and the practices uh, that allow us to function in a, in a democratic society, all of those things seem important. So, you know, little things. I think it's important, for example, when you're on social media, you know, one thing that happens on social media is um, because engagement and sharing are in a sense content neutral, right? And they're privileged. Um, if you share misinformation or disinformation, even to point out how wrong it is, you're actually contributing to its distribution online in ways that are perceived by the algorithmic systems as, oh, this person is interested in that. And that particular story, lots of people are interested in, will make it trend. Mm. So you can, so, you know, in the US, one of the things that they found out after the school shooting of the students in Florida was a conspiracy theory video claiming that they were crisis actors and that this was all staged, you know, as a um, political conspiracy to take people's guns away. That became the top trending video on YouTube, mm. not because people believed it, but because people were sharing it and saying, oh my God, have you seen this? So I think one thing, you know, kind of deplatforming information, Stuff that's, you know, it, and, and it's really tempting, and I, I'm sure I've done it. Like, oh, can you believe that this is circulating online? Check yeah. this out. Don't do that, right? You know, find the ways to tamp down the spread of, of the misinformation and disinformation. And, of course, find strategies for countering and asserting, um, you know, the, the practices and the information that contribute to understanding what's actually going on. And that, you know, that has to do, I think, with our social spheres. You know, what do you do when you encounter somebody, a friend, <laughs> who's a conspiracy theorist? How do you, how do you handle that? Um, mm. 
it's not easy. I've been in those situations of conversations with conspiracy theorists. It's very tricky. You know, if you try to argue against them, you've automatically shown that you're a dupe and that you're actually on the other side. Um, how, do we, how do we counteract things when facts don't matter? That's something I really struggle with. When you see someone post something or share something like, a, you know, a lovely family member shares something insane in the family WhatsApp chat. And you go, but do you know that here's all the evidence for why this is, you know, maybe not right. That in and of itself, the facts are irrelevant. Well, I don't trust Big Pharma. I don't trust that government. I don't trust, everyone knows that that media outlet is blah, blah, blah. How do you counteract when there is, it feels like there's no common ground. It's not easy. I've, I've been interested by the example of, I, I don't know if you've seen him online, there's a, a US historian named Kevin Cruz, and, and he spent a lot of time engaging with Dinesh D'Souza, the kind of right-wing um, you know, propagandist and, and spreader of huge historical inaccuracies and conspiracies. And as a historian, he's tried to correct D'Souza's um, fake histories or inaccurate histories. Uh, and what, what he said is, I don't have any illusions that I'm going to convince D'Souza. Mm. I do this for the community of folks who, for, the, for whom it would be useful to have the actual historical information and have that information so if they encounter this in their daily lives, they also have the facts. And I think that's, that is an important thing to do because one of the, um, again, if you've ever encountered folks who go off on their conspiracy theories and and inaccurate histories, they often have a quite well-developed story that they've picked up and rehearsed in, you know, in chat rooms or uh, conversations where they get this information. And it's useful and important, I think, to actually develop. Very often, it's tempting to just dismiss them. Sky, oh, yeah, you're a conspiracy theorist. I do think it's important to educate ourselves so that we have the historical knowledge to the extent that we can get it to tell a coherent, plausible counter-narrative that actually points out some of the inconsistencies and inaccuracies in those stories. And in again, again, I don't think it's necessarily going to convince somebody who doesn't believe in facts, but it's going to fortify us with a clear understanding of the world and give us the tools to communicate to others who might be more open to listening uh, and, and understanding. Mm -hmm. So the observers who are following Dinesh, for example, who might actually be open to hearing the alternatives, you're not going to convince Dinesh, but however many thousands or millions of followers he has, when you respond and say, did you actually know that blah, 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 they'll be looking. So we're trying to actually convince the second grade observers, I suppose, as opposed to the, and, the primary and, person. And so hopefully there's somebody there, you know, among Dinesh's followers who might be willing to listen. But it's also to create another community, right, around Kevin Cruz of the people, mm -hmm. you know, to bring together. Because one of the things that the conspiracy theory people have found online is that they can collect each other. Yeah. Whereas once they might have been more distributed and, you know, the kind of... Shaking um, their fists at the sky. Yeah, shake it right, you know, um, doing their thing in kind of relative isolation, they've been able to build communities online, which gives their voice a certain strength. And... Yeah, the response has to also build communities. So Kevin Cruz has built a huge following around debunking <laughs> D'Souza. The danger there is, of course, you cr you create increased polarization. You end up with just kind of right. two groups yeah. who just refuse to listen to each other and automatically dismiss everything that, that they do. And that's, you know, 
that's a that's a real danger and i'm not sure i i don't i don't have any way out of it my hope is that over time eventually and you see this hope all of the time right that in some sense those who have a clearer more accurate grasp of reality will be able to use how reality works to to make it clear that their understanding actually is a more effective understanding than those who's those whose understanding is fake or inaccurate or conspiratorial. That's, but that's, and, and you see that hope all the time, you know, like real events will bear, there's a time when the rubber hits the road, you know, when the illusion of these people will have to confront reality. Um, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. I, I have to believe that to some extent, for some people, it will happen. Mark Andreevic, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Let's hear from Margaret Simons. I'm Margaret Simons. I'm a journalist and author, a journalism academic, and also a board member of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative. Margaret Simons, what do you think the average person at home can do to make sure that they're getting uh, reliable information, not fake news, but also what can they do to be supporting public interest journalism beyond maybe just having a few subscriptions? Well, there's a number of proposals for addressing this crisis which are out there at the moment and which the Public Interest Journalism Initiative has been putting to government. Um, we also had an inquiry by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, uh, which reported last year, and that also made some recommendations. Uh, the recommendations from the ACCC included um, stable and increased funding for the public broadcasters, SBS and ABC, um, and improved grant schemes particularly focused on local journalism, and I know the government is looking at that. Um, what the Public Interest Journalism Initiative has suggested in addition to that is that there be a tax rebate given for investment in public interest journalism. So similarly, similarly to, for example, to the tax rebate that companies already get if they're investing in research and development uh, more broadly. Mm. Look at having another tax rebate. We saw tax rebates work really well in our cultural industries uh, 30 years ago for the film industry. Um, the great rebirth of the Australian film industry, which led to films like Picnic and Hanging Rock and so on, um, was really founded on a system of tax rebates where people got tax favourable treatment for investing in such films. We're proposing that sort of system for journalism, and we've done some research which people can see on our website. Um, to have a look at that. We'll be doing some more work on that. Um, another thing that's been suggested and so far not acted on by government is to allow people to tax deduct philanthropic donations to journalism. So we already see some philanthropy in journalism. We've got the Judith Nielsen Institute, which gives grants for public interest journalism. And also The Guardian has had some um, uh, contributions from various philanthropic trusts. So we're Suggest, um, the ACCC has suggested, and we support this, that those um, are able to be tax-deductible donations. So far, the government has not responded to any of that. It is looking at the grant scheme, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but those policy proposals are out there. They're not being suggested by lunatics or fringe dwellers. It's the, the ACCC that suggested most of them. Um, and they're there for any side of politics to pick up and further examine. Is there anything just the beyond what the government we, we should be lobbying the government to do, which is obviously important? Is there anything just the average person on the street could do as an individual? Well, pay a subscription yep. to a quality journalism outlet. 
absolutely. Um, and, you know, value and understand what journalists do. And obviously lobby governments of any colour. Um, this problem isn't going to go away in the short term. Um, to also value journalism and be prepared to consider public policy interventions to support it. Margaret Simons, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. David Holmes has these tips. I'm David Holmes and I'm the director of the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub, which researches ways of building climate literacy in Australia for a broad range of audiences. David Holmes, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any tips for people who want to ensure they, they don't fall prey to fake news or disinformation campaigns? What can they do to improve their media consumption? So I think any media outlet that has a kind of public interest charter, uh, it should be in your news feed, whether you're curating that through social media or going directly to it. Um, I think uh, news outlets that, that also source a, you know, a, a number of different sources, so you've got you know, a number of different lines of evidence, if you like, uh, as well as news outlets that engage in investigative journalism because they're more likely to have you know, good research behind what they're, they're telling audiences and they, they take it seriously because investigative journalism does cost more uh, for for the news organisation. So it means that they really do take public interest journalism seriously and you're not just getting these sort of, you know, random sound bites about things just because it was convenient that they could get a quote from just, just whoever. Um, and, um, but, you know, the more experts that are, that are sourced, particularly on issues that really matter to people, is really important. Here's some advice from Johan Lidberg. My name is Associate Professor Johan Lidberg in the School of Media, Film and Journalism um, at Monash University and I'm also the Deputy Head of Journalism. Johan Lidberg, thanks so much for joining us. No, you're welcome. What can the average person at home do to try to improve the situation of uh, misinformation but also ensure that we, we do have good freedom of information laws in this country or good freedom of information practice? Yeah, so the first thing is that everyone can become more media literate. Yeah? Start by watching media, watch on ABC every single week. That's a really good start. You know, you, you don't need to... Media literacy sounds like a very, very complex thing, and it is complex, you know, from a research point of view. But from an everyday person's point of view, watching ABC's Media Watch, that's a really good start. Um, I would have thought because they both expose things that are, that are chunky and wrong, but they also, um, I think, would make the layperson understand um, uh, media and the news better. So that's one thing they can do. Number two is do not share stuff that you think is wrong. <laughs> you know, just don't decide to don't do it. And then I think there's a third thing, something that I did myself after Cambridge. Um, Analytica in 2016, I, I haven't deleted my Facebook account, but I'm not active anymore. And I've said I won't be active until they own up and take a responsibility. I think you can keep telling them that, you know. And uh, for a while there, Facebook kept sending me Facebook memories, you know, acted like a forlorn lover. <laughs> and, and, they, and, they, 
And they kept it up for a year and then they stopped, which I thought was interesting. The algorithm must have figured out that I didn't respond. Then in terms of access information, you've got to use it. You know, you, if, you, if we don't use freedom of information systems, they wither and die. And so journalists try to use it, um, parliamentarians try to use it. But the more everyone uses it, the more pressure we get on the decision makers. So, yeah, be, be active. Johan Lidberg, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. That's it for our look at fake news. We'll be back with a new topic soon. Thanks to all our guests, Mark Andreevich, Johan Lidberg, David Holmes and Margaret Simons. More information on what we discussed today can be found in the show notes. And if you like this episode, write us a five-star review. If you don't like the episode, we don't really want to hear from you. I'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.